And now, City Slickers with Chuck and Victoria. Two judgmental New Yorkers talking movies. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode two of City Slickers with Chuck and Victoria. I'm Victoria Keelan. That's my fellow New Yorker, Chuck Curry. And uh, I'm happy to be back for episode two. Episode one, we got a lot of questions, Chuck, about you. Uh, they want to know a lot of people want to know where your uh, where your love of horror films and zombies comes from (laughs) so maybe you can enlighten us a little bit and uh, follow up last week we gave our we each gave our top five favorite Halloween movies and so since Halloween was a few days ago what did you end up doing for Halloween actually I uh, struck up a uh, pretty fun film festival at the Pocono Cinema in East Stroudsburg where I uh, currently reside we showed uh four different halloween movies throughout the week starting last friday leading into uh tonight well throughout halloween leading into tonight we showed halloween the original uh, john carpenter film from 1978 we showed the shining from 1980 night of the living dead from 1968 and we rounded it out with uh the last man on earth from 1964 which stars vincent price i don't know if you're familiar with that film it's the first incarnation of the Richard Matheson novel, um, The Last Man on Earth, which was uh, made into a movie, I Am Legend, with Will Smith, and then the second incarnation was a movie from 1971, which starred Charlton Heston, The Omega Man, uh, which I'm a very big fan of. Uh, Overall, this was a lot of fun to do, uh, give people older and new a chance to see some of these classic films back on the big screen. I'll say this about Halloween and The Shining. Victoria, the high-definition transfers DCP DCP format on mm-hmm. the big screen were simply outstanding. The Shining is a unique experience to see on the big screen, as I said before many times. I think I mentioned it last week on the podcast. If you haven't seen The Shining on a movie theater screen, when you get a chance, see it. There's, it's a unique experience and a fascinating watch. And as far as Halloween goes from 78, still a really well-crafted, well-made movie that uh, delivers the goods. It's a very, very uh, cool experience to see Halloween on the big screen. So I had a good time doing this. We had some really good Fun. crowds, uh, and it was uh, a really cool time. Yeah, I love I love like revival showings of old movies, and especially you and I both had Halloween two on our top five lists. Um, so and and The Shining is such a great movie, and I can imagine it just must look. I mean, the visuals of that movie are so great. I can imagine how incredible it looks on the big screen, which I've never seen it, but uh, that's something I'll, I'll have to make the trip out to your theater in East Stroudsburg. No, actually, you can see it probably once a month in New York City because it plays constantly. Uh, I believe at the IFC. Uh, Theater and also the Film Forum, both uh, in New York City, both play The Shining at least once a month. So uh, you oh, can get cool. a chance to uh, walk down the block and go see it uh, nice. at that, those two theaters. Well, to, to get to some fan questions, I mean, the, the, the one question that I keep getting is, how is Chuck so into horror movies? Where did this love come from? So give us a little bit of background on this, and then we'll, we're going to move on. We've got lots of movie news, and we've got some uh, our NYC moment. We do like to pay a little homage to our hometown every episode. Sure. And so we've got uh, our NYC moment is going to be the Meyerowitz Stories, which is a new Netflix drama. And uh, plus, we've got some other Netflix recommendations coming up later on. But first, let's get into why are you so obsessed with horror flicks? I guess that's sort of a, a loaded question. I, 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 to give an honest answer, uh, I'm more diverse in what I like, but I do like horror probably because when I was a kid, you know, there was a thing called video stores, Victoria. A lot of people don't know <laughs> that they actually existed. You went 
to your local, mostly mom and pop video store back in back in the day. Blockbuster at that time didn't even exist. So you, when you walked into a video store, there were box covers, and uh, there was a lot of cool low budget horror films where you saw the box cover. And I remember seeing Halloween uh, in a video store for the first time, taking it home and watching it, and then Dawn of the Dead from '78 and uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Franchise uh, and so much more. Um, the thing about horror movies is that uh, you know filmmakers had the opportunity to really create or unleash their creative uh, energy uh, onto uh, you know and make movies for lower budgets and use a lot of creativity. I'll give you an example like John Carpenter when he made uh, the thing, although it was a studio film from Universal. The special effects in that movie were all practical. I remember watching that uh, in the 1980s and really digging it so you know horror as a whole i I like uh as we spoke about last week the exorcist i think is as good a horror movie as uh any ever made Mm -hmm. an an awesome film and the sequels it's always fun to see the you know the uh horror sequels and and then even a movie like um tremors with uh kevin bacon you know to watch that that movie you know basically a b movie at its heart and core but a lot of fun uh more, more of a uh uh, a sci-fi movie maybe than horror, but it certainly has horror elements. But I don't know what the reason. I can't really put uh, all the specifics or give you all the intangibles why I like the <laughs> horror genre. I, I, I just do like a lot of people. I yeah. just do. All right. Well, hey, if, if you have a fan question <laughs> for Chuck or me, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All It's the same handle, at City Slickers Pod. You can follow Chucker on Twitter, at Poseidon72. It's named after his favorite movie. And I am uh, at On Air Victoria. All right. So we've got lots of news to get to. So uh, let's start out with some Lethal Weapon 5 news. Yeah, it was announced uh, a few days ago that uh, Mel Gibson... Danny Glover and director Richard Donner were in some sort of negotiations with Warner Brothers to do a fifth entry in the lethal, popular Lethal Weapon franchise. The first film, Lethal Weapon 1, came out in 1987, followed by, which I think is one of the best genre sequels of all time, Lethal Weapon 2. They upped the ante in that film, Victoria, adding Joe Pesci, Part 3 added Rene Russo. Uh, it's Next year will be the 20th anniversary of Part 4, so in terms of uh, logistics and uh, common sense, this seems like a good opportunity, if they are going to do it, to do it. I I really do hope this materializes because I love the chemistry of Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, and director Richard Donner. It's a really solid franchise. It's an R-rated franchise. They never held back on the violent content in these films, but they always added a real fun uh, content to the overall proceedings. This is a really solid franchise, and I think the fan base will be there if they do a Lethal Weapon 5. So uh, I hope it uh, is greenlit. I, yeah, I think so, too. And I think that the the fan base for the original movies is still there. I do believe no you're doubt. right. And then it's the interesting thing is having the new TV show be as unexpectedly popular as it is, that's a whole new generation of people watching. Now, albeit it's different actors, but still the idea of having the franchise be reborn as a television show, I don't know of another example where that's really happened. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can't recall myself either, but I, I do think I and I got to be uh, in full disclosure I don't watch the TV show that is currently airing on Fox but to my surprise I was surprised that it is as popular mm-hmm. as it is and it got a second season so I think that uh uplift in the franchise tag lethal weapon in itself 
uh, does hold some weight in why Warner Brothers might uh, greenlight uh, a new uh, movie entry with the old cast, Gibson and uh, Glover. Hopefully they'll bring back Pesci too, and I'm almost certain if they do this, Rene Russo, uh, who plays uh, Mel Gibson's wife in the uh, last two installments, will be heavily involved here also. That's great. I love her. Um, so now in, in some other movie news, we've got uh, a little bit of some new uh, developments in terms of what we, you and I have been calling Hollywood's implosion. I mean, with all of the, the Harvey Weinstein started it off, and then Brett Ratner and Dustin Hoffman has issued an apology. These are all the sexual misconduct and, and sexual assault allegations. Um, Natasha Henstridge and Olivia Munn have been very vocal about what happened to them with Brett Ratner. And Kevin Spacey, of course, I mean, he's had, he really kind of was the second big name after Harvey Weinstein to have such a, a, a scandal. And Netflix has, has cut ties with him with House of Cards. They canceled production immediately. Uh, they, I think, were thinking about maybe doing more than a season six, but now the, the current season of season six is, uh, once that's done, then the whole series is going to be over. And Chuck, interesting, you had saw some language in the Netflix statement that I thought was really interesting that a lot of people may have missed. Um, I don't know if you have that statement in front of you, but that there was a, a part that Netflix said that Kevin Spacey was not on set, and they implied that because he was not on set, that the rest of the cast and crew were quote-unquote safe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've seen people thrown under the bus before, but this uh, takes it to a totally new level. What it seems here, after the Harvey Weinstein uh, incident broke, which is uh, you know quite disturbing to say the least and obviously if these allegations are true and there's so you know there's an old saying victoria when there's a lot of smoke there's fire Mm -hmm. and clearly there's so much smoke in a lot of these incidents that uh there's fire And, and what's interesting about this and i've never seen anything like it before in terms of the snowball effect in this swift and i mean swift action taken by the studios involved here uh, after Harvey Weinstein, I mean, you get the other day Kevin Spacey dropping that tweet. Netflix was absolutely uh, no wiggle room here, um, basically parting ties with Kevin Spacey. Today, Kevin Spacey came out with a, uh, a statement saying he's going to enter into therapy to try to get uh, uh, come to, uh, to terms, I guess, with some of his uh, behavior. But I think that tweet the other day by Kevin Spacey uh, it could spell the end of a very good career. It was just announced this morning uh, before we went on air to do this uh, podcast that Warner Brothers has cut ties with Brett Ratner after numerous allegations against him for, uh, if you read the allegations by the accusers, clearly if this is true, again, if it is true, uh, it is criminal behavior, sexual assault uh, in the highest uh, level. And Brett Ratner, he is a, a guy like Harvey Weinstein, has a lot of power in the industry. Director of the Rush Hour franchise, has a production company set up at Warner Brothers uh, titled uh, Brat Pack Productions. He was scheduled to go into production on a biopic of Hugh Hefner uh, sh- shortly with Jared Leto already being cast as Hugh Hefner. The question oh. is, will this spell an end of Brett Ratner's career? Uh, I think I think it could. Jeremy Ram, uh, Piven, who uh, was basically known as uh, Ari Gold on Entourage, uh, has been accused of uh, sexual assault by an actress on the set of that show a few years ago. And then Dustin Hoffman, 
was uh, accused of uh, over-aggressive flirtation by an actress 30 years ago. She was 17 at the time. He came out with an apology. What's interesting about this, Jeremy Piven, actually is the, Piven is actually the only one in the one we've mentioned to do a complete denial. But it, it appears in the Kevin Spacey incident that there is enough uh, in the pipeline here where I think – a lot more would have been disclosed if he didn't come out with mm-hmm. his uh, statement of somewhat uh, admission. But the way he disclosed that statement really was offensive to the uh, gay community. And yep. if you look at the, the, the reaction among his fellow col- colleagues, it has not been kind. So this is a major story. I haven't seen anything like it, but it really does feel like an outright Hollywood cleansing and I think there's a lot more shoes to drop. But on the flip side of this, I just want to point this out. I think you can get any woman at this point could come out with an accusation against, let's say, an actor. And I think it would be very hard pressed for the actor to uh, prove it otherwise. So this is a really low – this is a time bomb mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of people. And I also think there's a lot of people in the industry who are going to have a hard time sleeping for the next few months seeing where all this is going to go. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Kevin Spacey thing is just, you know, that was it was offensive to the gay community because he was he sort of issued he issued an apology. He said, I don't remember the incident is what he started out by saying. Okay, fine. But at the same time, this this actor, Anthony Rapp, who has held on to this story and held on to this trauma for since he was 14 years old, he's 46 now. I mean, to to be that dismissive to say, well, I don't remember the incident that changed your life. So, but sorry about it anyway. You know, it was a very dismissive tweet. He didn't, I don't think he thought about it. I don't think that a publicist had, had worked with him on it. And then I don't think to, so either. And then to piggyback and say, well, now I'm a gay man. And it just was, I mean, it was such, It was, that was a classic case of, it was completely mishandled. That's a PR nightmare that was completely turned into a debacle. So I I, to- I totally agree. And, you know, it's interesting because we live in a culture of some in in the last uh, year. We've seen some really horrible, awful, misguided tweets by a lot of different people. This might be the most misguided tweet uh, I've ever seen. Yeah. Now, so Jeremy, or so Jeremy Piven has denied everything. Uh, Dustin Hoffman apologized. Apparently, the girl was seventeen. She was an intern on a movie, and he, I guess, grabbed her butt a few times, and that's where. Uh, that's what that's what specifically she said. He apologized for that. Andy Dick had end of, I mean, he's had a lot of. Cra- he's just a crazy guy anyway. His 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 statement. He got fired off of a movie that he's currently working on because of these types of allegations. Apparently, he likes to lick people's cheeks. <laughs> really, okay. which sounds. <laughs> I mean, he's a weird dude anyway. Mm-hmm. No one's really expecting anything normal to come from Andy Dick. But, you know, he kind of he issued a a statement that's sort of similar to like a Harvey Weinstein thing. He said, well, you know, back in the 70s, like that's how I would get girls and guys because he's bi. He was like, that's how I would get people to date me. I would, you know, kiss them on the cheek and like lick their cheek because that's my thing. And and then he, he likened it to he said, yes, of course, I'm going to be hitting on people on set because I'm depressed and I'm lonely and I'm trying to get a date. That's his exact quote. So it's just, and he says now in the, you know, in 2017, he doesn't know the difference between what's sexual harassment and what's acting, asking someone out for a date. I mean, that is, that's as, about as wonky a statement as you can possibly make. I mean, like I said, it's coming from Andy Dick, so we're not really that so, surprised. So I got a, I got a question for you. Who is Andy Dick? 
<laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, so, all right. So I, I think, you know, in summation here, Hollywood, it, like you said, there does seem to be a big cleansing. Um, Gal Gadot, who, of course, is Wonder Woman, she was uh, she was scheduled to present Brett Ratner with an Israeli award. Um, there's a Jewish film society. Week, right? Yeah, and he she was scheduled to do that. Once this stuff broke, she backed out. And Patty Jenkins, the director of Wonder Woman, stepped in and presented him with the award because they've been friends for a while. And even now, Patty Jenkins has heard more stories, and she said she finds the whole thing deeply disturbing. So it'll be interesting to see over the next few weeks and maybe even months how all of this unfolds. And like you said, if Warner Brothers cut ties with Brett Ratner, then maybe that's more work for female directors. Maybe Patty Jenkins gets to step in. Uh, to the Hugh Hefner biopic, you never know. It could make Maybe, new opportunities. But I tell you this one: th- this is clearly what the, the definition of a. This is a game changing story on uh, on a lot of different yes. fronts, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's very very sad, no doubt about it. But also. Uh, I think it's got a lot, a lot more legs going. Uh, we'll see how this plays out in the next uh, weeks to months uh, going forward. Absolutely. And our third bit of movie news is a new trailer that uh, you and I both just saw starring Margot Robbie and Sebastian Stan. The movie is called I, Tanya, and it is the, I guess, somewhat true story of, of Tanya Harding and the Nancy Kerrigan thing. But I don't... Looking at the trailer, it's definitely positioning itself as a dark comedy. I don't think Nancy Kerrigan is laughing, however. But uh, what are, what was your take on this trailer, I, Tanya? I like the trailer a lot. It sort of surprised me because uh, I didn't know what to expect watching the trailer. Actually, I watched the Red Band trailer, which is more what they call the R-rated version in the uh, the. the the business, but uh, it's interesting when you, because I remember that that story, the way it played out, and I guess you never really understand the way people are in real life until you actually find out all the facts. But uh, it appears that uh, Tanya Harding was uh, some sort of uh, hillbilly, as they call white trash yeah. uh, type personality with a very foul mouth and a devious mind. Her boyfriend uh, at the time obviously was a uh, low level. Uh, hoodlum and uh it's just interesting how this played out on such a big stage one of the things i took from that trailer beside the fact that margaret robbie is really positioning herself to be the the newest incarnation i think this generation's of uh maybe a, a Mel- michelle pfeiffer type career uh i i see playing out for margaret robbie she's certainly a, a beautiful talented actress who's positioning herself uh, in the producing realms in Hollywood, gaining a lot of traction in terms of uh, power structure in the business. Good for her. But uh, Allison Janney, who plays her mother in this trailer, trailer looks, in that, looks to be having an absolute blast getting all the uh, <laughs> foul-mouth-type uh, dialogue. But uh, there's Oscar buzz on this movie. It comes out limited, I believe, later this month with a wider release. It is, it is an independent movie. It is not a big studio film but uh, this is a good-looking trailer by a very talented uh, actress in the lead in that Margaret yeah. Robbie. I first I first saw her, actually, the first time I saw her was in The Wolf of Wall Street, playing the uh, girlfriend and wife of the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio in that Martin Scorsese movie. But uh, she's really emerged into a major player in the business, co-starring with Will Smith in the movie Focus, mm-hmm. and then playing Harley Quinn in uh, Warner Brothers' Suicide Squad, which got her uh, a lot of acclaim, a lot of eyeballs in terms of uh, moviegoers going to theater to uh, see her. So uh, this movie looks good, though. 
I think this looks, yeah, I'm very interested to see this because this was such a pop culture phenomenon, this story. And uh, and, and it, it seems to have an interesting take just based on the trailer, uh, which we'll post on at City Slickers Pod on all of our social media so you can see it. But it's it's interesting. It's There's some, there's some funny elements to it. So they definitely are trying to make it more of a lively story than just, you know, no this is what happened. And, and Alice and Janney's character as her mom slash momager slash tr- uh, coach, which I never knew Tanya Harding's mother was her coach. But um, so there's a lot of interesting dynamic there, verbally abusive. I mean, there's like you said, there's a real element of kind of like a, a white trash kind of background there. But it'll be interesting to see if Tanya Harding herself has endorsed this or has, if she has spoken about it. Nancy Kerrigan, of course, has been a commentator for figure skating for the last you know, 10 or 15 years. I wonder what her take on this will be, because this is really the first movie movie. I think there was a maybe a made-for-TV movie story about the Tanya Harding thing, but I don't know. You know those made-for-TV movies are usually pretty cheesy. But this, this is the first feature film telling this story, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see... Not only how is it received in theaters, because, you know, right now, unless it's a superhero movie, people aren't really flocking to theaters to see movies like this, especially independent films. So it'll be interesting to see how it all works out for I, Tanya. And again, we'll post that trailer on at City Slickers Pod. So uh, next up, uh, you and I, Chucker, last week had talked about some of our favorite scary movies for Halloween. And the one movie that we didn't really, and I should say franchise, really, if it's more than one, right? It's a franchise. Uh, The movie that we didn't really get to spend that much time on is Psycho. And that's a movie that I only recently saw because I'm breaking myself into horror movies. And on your recommendation, (laughs) I did see Psycho. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was creepy and cool. And it had all the same, you know, all the same feedback that I, you know, feelings that I had about it that most people have had for years. Um, And then one thing that's really interesting is that you had recommended Psycho 2, which takes place, I think, 25 years after the original. Is that right? 23 years. It came out in uh, 1983. The original came out in 1960. So original, I just saw the the Psycho 2 a couple weeks ago, and I Mm -hmm. loved it. I thought that it was, I, everything you said it was, I thought Anthony Perkins was amazing in it. I thought that the story was really cool. They, um, he becomes sort of like, almost like the hero in a an weird anti, way. They, they, call, they call that in the industry, it, it, it's like an anti-hero. You know, mm-hmm. he has that villainous, devious uh, element, but uh, you root for him and you like him in Psycho 2. And I agree with you. I think Psycho 2 is one of the most underrated sequels of all time, directed by a guy named Richard Franklin, who I think did a really good job, had love for the original film, and I think wrote a really good script. The direction here is really good. And if people in the uh, listening audience have not seen Psycho 2, uh, it's currently on Blu-ray. It's a really good transfer. Anthony Perkins has never been more likable in a movie. Norman Bates is a classic pop culture iconic character. And I agree with you. I love, and I mean I love Psycho 2. I think it's a really good movie and a terrific sequel that a lot of people may not have uh, seen. I never even knew it existed until you told me about it. I had never, I just one of those things, I, I had never heard of Psycho 2, and I didn't think that any of the Hitchcock films ever had a sequel. 
did they? Well, when it, 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 it's what's interesting when this and you could do people who want to get a chance to uh, see the Siskel and Ebert review of Psycho 2 on YouTube. When this movie came out in 1983, a lot of people really had serious reservations about doing a sequel to an Alfred Hitchcock film, especially one like Psycho, which was so well regarded uh, by uh, movie fans and critics. Uh, Psycho 2 came out. Some people were, you know, had issues with it, but a lot of people really dug it. And I think over time, this is a movie that a lot of people do appreciate it. You know, it's interesting because I had a, a friend who's older than me. We were talking about the Psycho franchise as a whole. And he told me that in 1960, when he saw the original Psycho in a movie theater, when the movie was over, the audience got up and people walked out, strangers holding hands, <laughs> walking down the block to their car. That's how uh, frightened or uh, the way the movie got in their head. Now, a lot of people watching Psycho now in 2017 might feel the movie is somewhat tame, but that shower sequence is uh, still really awesome. It's so well shot. And the one thing about Psycho, which makes it, I think, a a classic uh, in in movies, is that the story... Uh, structure was so unconventional where they took a lead character uh, played by Janet Lee, uh, Marion Crane, where you followed and then halfway through the movie, she gets snuffed off in the shower by Norman Bates. And I think that sequence in, in a movie in 1960 took the audience so by surprise that it gave that movie uh, a, a, a legendary status. But, uh, I, you know, if you ask me which Psycho movie of the overall franchise I like best, of course I love Psycho, but uh, there's something about Psycho 2 that um, I, I really dig, and I, I think it's a really terrific movie. And yeah, I mean, in Psycho, and you're right about that, I, I never thought of it that way, having the, the, the lead character be killed off halfway through, and then you're kind of left with, well, now who am I supposed to root for? Who am I, you know, what's coming next? I mean, that really was an interesting spin on storytelling. And, and, and even if you compare it to other Hitchcock movies, you know, like The Birds is popping into my head, and Tippi Hedren is there until the very last scene. And, you know, it's a tragic sort of last scene, but, you know, it's still, it's, it's consistent. And so that's interesting that uh, I wonder why he made that choice to kill Janet Lee off halfway through. But it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's funny, when I was a kid, now that I've seen Psycho, it, it all kind of makes sense. But when I was a kid, my parents had racehorses. And so we would travel around on weekends for different, you know, horse races. And apparently Janet Lee was uh, a racing fan. And so when I was a kid, I was maybe in middle school, uh, I was there with my mom and we were standing around at one of the racetracks and this woman comes over to my mom and me and she introduces herself and it's Janet Lee. And so, and she was with, uh, which turned out later on to be one of the Smothers brothers, <laughs> which was, I think it was the, uh, the older one with the glasses. I, I saw that on Nick at Night when I was a kid. Oh, okay. But, uh, so they were both friends and I guess the fans of the racing and apparently she was a big fan of our racehorse who had done very well, was a champion. And so she came over to introduce herself to my mom because she said, oh, you know, you're the owner of Joe's OK. And oh, my gosh, he's my favorite horse. And I'm just such a fan. And my mom's jaw dropped. And I had no idea who this lady was. But I just saw my mom kind of starstruck. And so my mom turns to me and she says, honey, this is this is Janet Lee. And I just kind of, you know, being a typical kid, I was like, Hi, you know, I didn't, I, and then my mom didn't know what to say. She was so starstruck. And then she said, this is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. 
And then I started, and I went, oh, cool, because I had seen Jamie Lee Curtis and things, so I knew who she was, and okay. so Janet Lee, Janet Lee was very gracious. She laughed so hard that this like little fifth grader had no idea who she was, but I knew who Jamie Lee Curtis was, her daughter. So it was one of those funny family moments that uh, I, my mom explained it later on. You know, she's a famous actress, and she was in a Hitchcock movie, but my mom didn't tell me all of what was in Psycho. Because I was obviously too young, but finally seeing Psycho and seeing this lovely woman who was so nice to us, and seeing her in the movie, I was kind of bummed when she got stabbed so violently. <laughs> I felt kind of like, "Oh no, don't kill her off." Well, well I, I got, I got to, I got to say one thing. Based on that story, clearly we grew up in uh, different neighborhoods. Yes, but uh, what with but. But what was what's really cool about uh, Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis is they wound up doing a cameo scene together in uh, Halloween H two O, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. And you know the interesting part about uh, the Norman Bates character, especially in Psycho Two, is that it's really actually fun to see a villain being likable on screen. Do you have any other uh, villain likable villains that uh, come to mind? Uh, you know, I, I think the funny thing is, likable villains, I think, tend to be more in the horror genre than maybe any other type of genre. So if you think about, like, yes, Norman Bates in Psycho 2 is absolutely a likable villain, and part of the reason is you can't quite figure out if he is still a villain. So that's exactly. that's one thing which I think is great. Um, you know, I remember every my, my older cousins and everybody I knew growing up, was they were obsessed with Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger was the bad guy, but yet he was so popular and funny and he had like kind of funny weird comments and lines that were in the movies and so like I would definitely say he would probably be a likable villain as well and you know and it tends to all be when you think about it sort of in that genre um, in the horror genre Chucky all those Chucky movies Chucky was in a weird way a likable yeah, villain he, because because uh, you're right because they injected those characters with uh, a very strong sense of humor actually Freddy Krueger in the first Elm Street movie was dead serious it wasn't until really uh, the terrific uh, third entry uh, Dream Warriors that they really injected the character with a lot of humor and that movie is a great sequel uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 The Dream Warriors uh, and it is very 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 funny one-liners by Robert Englund as uh, Freddy Krueger but I'll give you an example one is in the horror genre obviously Hannibal Lecter played by Anthony Hopkins there you go great example uh, has has really strong likability but getting outside the realm of horror you you could say that uh, Tom Hiddleston's Loki in the uh, Avengers Thor universe is a very sort of a a likable charming villain and then you had Alan Rickman, uh, one of the great villains of all time in Die Hard, opposite uh, Bruce Willis's John McClane. Uh, you, you rooted against him, but you so, sort of respected his mind and in a lot of ways liked him to a point. And I'll give you one more example of a very likable villain, which would be uh, Patrick Swayze's Bodie in, uh, in Point Break, a mm. very interesting uh, type of a villain. But clearly, uh, he, he was uh, the nemesis to Keanu Reeves' character in that uh, in that in that movie, um, so you know it is a very diverse category, and there are certainly villains that you just simply hate. But I think it is a lot of fun when you get sort of a villainous character that has likable qualities. I think think it makes uh, a lot of films better. Uh, with that point of view. It's true. And you know, it's funny now that you say Alan Rickman in, in Lethal Weapon, 
Die Hard. Die Hard, I mean. Uh, Alan Rickman apparently is really good at likable villains because now I'm thinking of he was amazing as the Sheriff of Nottingham in the uh, Robin Hood movie that Kevin Costner did. I think the the standout really was Alan Rickman in that movie. And then again, Alan Rickman in the Harry Potter series as Professor Snape, he's also an incredibly likable villain. And it's it's really interesting. I guess maybe some actors kind of just get typecast as being able to be the bad guy, but to have some sort of a charm or likability that the audience isn't fully invested in seeing them go get, get taken down. They still kind of want the villain to stick around a little bit in the end. I, and I, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. That That is, I think, the definition of the likable villain where you sort of like had mixed feelings when he goes down at the end. But, you know, it's hard to believe we're talking about Alan Rickman in past tense, passed away last year. But, you know, Die Hard, for people who don't know this, that was Alan Rickman's first theatrical film. He was a stage actor, uh, John McTiernan, the director, and I guess the casting directors uh, saw something in him, took a chance, and, boy, that chance really paid off. Almost the same way, you know, that the producers took a chance on Bruce Willis as being the lead in a major tentpole action movie. Willis primarily at the time was known for the TV show Moonlighting opposite Sybil Shepard on ABC. So Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis really get the major theatrical break in Die Hard. And that, uh, I've always said Die Hard is the best pure action movie ever produced. And I still hold by that uh, 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 thought, uh, even to this day, I, I, I it's a classic film with two uh, great performances, star-making by Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Interesting uh, topic, Victoria, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so let's get to our – We every week we like to do an, a little NYC moment and uh, to put a little spotlight on a movie or some or a movie that's been made for streaming, which is all the same now really to me. <laughs> it's kind of a, a movie's just a movie. We don't even distinguish bef- anymore between what's in theaters and, and what's on streaming because the streaming services have so much money to produce original content and, and they're just producing some great movies. One of uh, this week, we'll we'll talk about the Meyerowitz stories. Now, this is an original drama on Netflix. It stars Dustin Hoffman, Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, Emma Thompson, and Candice Bergen. And I don't know if you've seen this one yet. Have you, Chucker? I have not. The Meyerowitz stories, I'm not really sure uh, if this is based on a novel, but maybe you know about the filmmaker Noah Baumbach. He's uh, he's not- apparently a pretty well-known... Uh, filmmaker and and writer and so a lot of people there was a lot of like literary sort of buzz on this because he was involved in this story and uh, so basically what it is it's a family drama it's unlike anything you've ever seen Adam Sandler in which was very refreshing it was so nice to finally see Adam Sandler be taken seriously as an actor you forget that it's Adam Sandler it's I would say the best acting job he's ever done in his entire career uh, up to this point and uh, he showed a range that I didn't think Adam Sandler could have Ben Stiller to me is kind of always Ben Stiller he's also very good in it Dustin Hoffman is kind of sinking into this almost Robert De Niro-esque type of phase in his career I think he's got this you know very quiet acting style he's got the big beard he actually looks like Robert De Niro now <laughs> which is kind of bizarre but um, and Emma Thompson of course is always great playing a quirky character she plays his wife and essentially the story is Dustin Hoffman is a retired professor at Bard College which is a, a very artsy school in New York City 
and he has uh, two sons, and one is Adam Sandler, one's Ben Stiller, and one Ben Stiller is very successful accountant, and but not nothing didn't do anything in the arts, which really upsets his father because his father was a sculptor and a professor, and really hoped one of his kids would carry on his legacy. So it's this kind of interesting story of where this family is, like where they are in their lives, all set in New York City. The funny thing about New York City movies. It's it's when it, I find lately, whenever you see a movie that's set in New York, it's always some sort of uh, commentary on how the old way of New York, you know, the old way of New York living that people sit around in their Upper West Side apartments that have like, you know, floor to ceiling bookshelves and they sit around and, and eat bagels and talk about, you know, the Sunday, <laughs> like the Sunday, you know, New York Times and things like that. They definitely have, have injected that sort of literary snobbishness to it. So I don't know that Meyerowitz stories would have a mass appeal unless like you really dig that kind of storyline. It's a little bit slow, but it's it's thoughtful and it has it has a really nice uh, twist in it and the acting I would say alone I'm gonna give it three out of five wine glasses so I think that uh, it's I think it's worth it's definitely worth checking out the fact that it's free and it's on Netflix if it was in a theater I would say wait for it to hit streaming but um, I was impressed with it and I was mostly impressed with Adam Sandler to me he was the absolute standout and there's also one weird but interesting uh, cameo of Sigourney Weaver who looks fabulous and so she's in it too but it's a great cast and it's a really good story and I would definitely say if you want something a little more intellectual less you know superhero that I would I'd recommend the Myrowitz stories I think you would like it too a lot Chuck. Cool. Uh, I, I got a question for you because I just want to branch into the subject uh, real quickly. In terms of your viewing habits, how much uh, time do you spend watching uh, uh, material from streaming devices like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon versus, uh, say, going to a theater or watching uh, broadcast uh, television as a whole? Well, I would. My answer is not going to be pleasing to you as a theater, as someone on the board of a theater. <laughs> um, I have not been. The last time I was in the theater was for Wonder Woman, and the time okay. and and before that it was Beauty and the Beast. So I've only seen two movies in the theater. Everything else I watch is on streaming. I, we we ditched our cable, so we have. Um, uh, Sony's PlayStation View, which is fabulous. I love that. That's where we get all of our network shows. And then we also have Netflix and Amazon Prime, and that's everything is streaming. I mean, that's, you know, it's it's sort of just the way it goes. The superhero movie, Wonder Woman, it drew me to the theater because that is worth seeing in a theater. So I will make those choices based on movies that I really want to see in the theater on the big screen. You know, you know, it, 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 re- it really is interesting because... When I was doing uh, my regular radio spot, I think I, I, when the announcement was made about uh, the innovation of Netflix, I don't know when, when the heart of it came out, maybe six, seven, eight years ago when uh, Blockbuster uh, Video Store still existed and I was still going to a video store to rent uh, Blu-rays and DVDs to watch. I thought personally that the Netflix model uh, was a pipe dream. I didn't really see the innovation of streaming taking hold the way it has, which it clearly has, and it's really, to say it's a game changer would be an understatement, and I would say this generation certainly is growing up in a phase where they're absolutely content watching movies on a handheld 
device. And I think there's a lot of generation that doesn't really care to see a movie in the movie theater. If they do, they do. If they don't, they don't, as long as they have some device to see it on. Now, having said that, I, I love the fact that streaming has become popular in terms of because it broadens the scope of what is produced. I think a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, the, be- the best scripts the best uh, the best roles the diversity is certainly in in productions like Netflix and even stuff like you know HBO they've done a lot in the industry to uh, you know change the game I, I think the movie industry as a whole and we'll talk about this a lot more as f- uh, future podcasts go on but I, I really think the industry has gotten down to basically the movie theater the theaters that we're going to see in a movie theater are going to be the big uh, ten pole type franchises which will play on the biggest movie screens throughout the country and that can be uh, basically sold to China I, I think this weekend is a good example with the uh, Thor Ra- Ragnarok coming out I mean that movie Victoria actually opened internationally before it hits theaters in the states it made uh, 107 million dollars last week overseas wow. it opens tonight in theaters I think movies like Justice League would come which comes out in two weeks I mean you're going to get mass audience for those movies Star right. Wars The Last Jedi which opens on oh, December definitely. 15th you know is tracking a 215 million dollar opening weekend but movies that we describe like Battle of the Sexes like this movie I Tanya which comes out later November I mean we could hype it as much as we want but let's be honest the, the theatrical limitations will be somewhat limited because yeah. there there's a large segment now of the population that will say okay I Tanya trailer looks good Margaret Robbie Margaret Robbie's an actress I want to see but and it's a big but do I have to drive to my local uh, theater to see this movie and a lot of multiplexes didn't even carry movies like Battle of the Sexes you have to seek seek out the art house circuit to see a movie like that so if they can wait 30 days to uh, catch it on streaming after it's finished with its limited theatrical release, they're going to do it. So that's less of a take for theaters, more of a take for streaming. And uh, yes, people will still get in their car, turn the ignition on, drive to the local multiplex to see the major popcorn blockbuster. But the more adult-oriented, sophisticated stuff, they're not doing that. They are going to wait for streaming. That's but, true, uh, and I, that's why just, that's, that's why like a story like the Meyerowitz stories, like a movie like that, that was perfect for Netflix. That was perfect for uh, I watched it on Tuesday night. It sat on my couch with a glass of wine and watched it, and that's that's exactly where it belongs. That does not belong in a movie theater. And I think even something like Battle of the Sexes with Emma Stone and uh, Steve Carell, I, I don't really know that that was all that great of a move to put that in theaters. That could have gone right to a Netflix or a Hulu. But but. but it, it, Here's what they're doing. They do. They will put it in theaters, but they're not spending the huge uh, amount of money on marketing. Basically, right. they, they stamp it with a theatrical release. They get it Oscar consideration for the fact that it played in theaters because it has to play in the theater to get Oscar consideration. That is the uh, rules of the uh, guild. But primarily in their mindset, they want this movie sold on uh, on streaming devices Uh even even Blu-ray and DVD, will it eventually go by the uh, wayside? I, I say let's strike up. I think so. Strike up. I, I say let's strike up a happy medium and give me an opportunity to drive to a video store at least one more time. <laughs> Good luck. I think there's one blockbuster left in America, and they do have a very funny Twitter account. They've been getting a lot of headlines in the last couple of months, but uh, yeah, that's it. There's one blockbuster left. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Well, that's episode two. Thank you, Chuck Curry. I'm Victoria Keelan. Make sure you give us a follow on at City Slickers Pod on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get all your favorite podcasts. We are there. We're back every single Thursday with a brand new episode and uh, we'll be discussing. Uh, I, we, I know we're going to be following up on the whole Hollywood implosion as as the weeks unfold. That'll be a story that we'll definitely stay on top of and we'll have more movie news and more reviews next week. We'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.